1: post-pandemic activity you invented a overly complicated a cocktail yeah uh i probably did yeah i had to think <laughs> about that one a little bit more it depends <laughs> on your definition of overly complicated and maybe your definition of cocktail but uh no i went to a concert like a live music concert good for you with lots of people crammed into one room yeah it was completely terrifying it really feels like you're <laughs> digging your life into your own hands
2: but how many how many minutes did it take for that to, to wear off because I, I i also like went to a a concert a few weeks ago that this was the this was classical music so it was less sort of sardine can packed um and it did take me like 10 minutes to relax um given the number of people were there i
1: will say it seemed like most people we were up on the second floor of the nine thirty club uh you know if you guys have been there i knew it was gonna days. be the nine
3: thirty club i knew it yeah
1: well it's really it, it, like it was walking distance to my house i didn't That's know that cause i moved into my house Really shortly before the pandemic, so I' never had opportunity to walk there <laughs> to go to anything, but it's very close, which is great and uh we're up in like the second floor, and I've been going to nine thirty clubs yeah there's more thirteen space, years America, old right. there's way more space there, but I used to remember thinking when I was like a preteen going to like pop punk shows newfound glory I don't know whatnot in mosh pits looking up at like you know Elderly thirty-year-old men up on that second t- balcony. I'm like, how lame! I'll never be that lame. And it's that my wife and I are on the furthest possible level, all the way up top, so we can see masks on, huddled away from the crowds, but trying to enjoy one of our favorite bands.
3: I will say the last concert I saw pre-COVID was a Mitski concert at the 9:30 Club, and Ooh. I remember it very distinctly because as I was walking in, someone standing in the line behind me said very loudly. Every sad person in D.C. is here.
1: (laughs) That's not true because that's everyone in D.C. (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Regna Reason. I'm one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein.
2: Hello was that a was that a Thor Ragnarok reference? It is a Thor Ragnarok. I thought reference. that was nice. I thought that was good.
1: It was good. I was worried I've done that one before and I'm a little worried I have but I couldn't find it in any of my I prior think notes you have, so hopefully
3: actually.
1: not I have that well of course those dulcet tones is my other co-host Quinta Jurassic Hello Quinda.
3: Hello, everyone.
1: I failed to introduce you. And these are the only three sets of dulcet tones you will be hearing this week because we are taking a nice, relaxing, no guest week where we all have a little bit of room to stretch our views, stretch our opinions and our limbs with a little extra time uh, as we are talk through some of the
2: week's big national security news stories. It's going to be even less rational than it usually is, rational security.
1: That's almost certainly true. Potentially less secure, too? I don't know about that one so much. In case you can't tell, I was actually physically stretching in my box as I was saying talking about the ideological stretching. It's like a whole sort of experience and sensation I'm excited about this time. But we are excited to have you here today with us to talk through the big stories in national security this week for what we are calling the Textual Healing Edition, because a lot of the stories for this week are about how we think about words in the context of the law. And then one story is really not about that at all, but it's just going to be fun to talk about. (laughs) Two out of three. Two out of three ain't bad, guys. (laughs) That's that's 660 is a great batting score. It works for us here. Topic one, what's in a name? Observers of the war in Ukraine are increasingly turning to a controversial term to describe the actions of Russian forces, genocide. Why are people suddenly using this word and is its use appropriate here? Topic two, who's afraid of going dark? A recent expose has gone deep into the struggle between big tech companies and NSO Group, the Israeli hacking company that has provided various governments around the world with the ability to access users' phones and other protected communications. What does this tell us about the future of communication security and the role of companies like NSO Group in it? And topic three, Florida woman disputes sanitation standards. A federal judge in the Middle District of Florida has adopted an extremely narrow reading of a federal statute to hold that the Biden administration lacks the legal authority to require individuals to wear masks on airplanes and other transportation systems. What does this holding tell us about where the legal debate around pandemic measures is headed? For our first topic, Alan, I'll hand it over to you to get us started.
2: Yeah, so we're we're going we're gonna to start with the most serious topic, and then our conversation will just get progressively absurd uh, as we go through our remaining two topics. That is how we like to do things. That That is, that is. Um, so giving mounting evidence of Russian atrocities and war crimes in Ukraine, as well as increasingly radical rhetoric coming out of Russian media about getting rid of Ukraine, not only as a country, but also as a cultural or even national idea. Questions are being raised about whether Russia's actions constitute, or at least are going in the direction of, genocide. President Biden last week called what Russia is doing genocide, uh, though those remarks seem to be a little ad-libbed. And he noted uh, that, quote, it's becoming clearer and clearer that Putin is trying to wipe out the idea of being Ukrainian. And of course, you know, when you look at this in broader historical perspective, this is not the first time that Russian action against Ukraine can uh, plausibly or arguably called a genocide. Uh, most infamously, um, the the Amor, which was a kind of a man-made and arguably intentional famine in Ukraine from 1931 to 1932 that killed you know, millions and millions of uh, Ukrainians. And this is one of the great you know, humanitarian atrocities of the 20th century that still does not get the attention that it deserves. Uh, that certainly, I think, could be characterized as, as a genocide against the Ukrainian people. And so now we're here, 90 years later, uh, having a, a you know a similar kind of argument with with the the same protagonists, um, so there's a lot to discuss here. Um, but I want to start with Scott because genocide, in addition to being a, an idea and a concept, is a legal term uh, of art. And so, what is the internationally legally recognized definition of genocide? And are the Russians right now committing it, as we understand, given the facts that are available to us?
1: Sure. So. Genocide is actually one of those rare terms where the term actually evolved specifically in the context of the law. It wasn't really a pre-existing term prior to the effort to outlaw what we now call genocide that arose in the context surrounding World War II, a little bit during and then particularly after, and developed by guy Raphael Lemkin, who is... Perhaps most famously, at least most recently famously, um, his story is memorialized in saying that the power is a problem from hell, which many of us probably read in undergrad and graduate school at various points um, that goes through kind of a, a modern history of genocide. It um, spends a lot of time on his, his advocacy efforts. And so it was actually a concept that always, at least in the way that he was framing it, international institutions were framing it, had a actual specific legal context in terms of defining a particular conduct which is prohibited under international law. The General Assembly adopted a resolution kind of recognizing the term in 1946 and recognizing that it had this international legal content. So there is an idea that it is a Jus Kogan's norm, meaning it is a, a fundamental obligation of the international legal system that all states are obligated to abide by even if they weren't party to a treaty to it. But most states are party to a treaty to it. That's the Genocide Convention of 1948, which was negotiated or finalized a few years later. I think it actually was still even in process of being negotiated at the time of the General Assembly Resolution. Not positive about that, but that's my vague recollection. And it carves out a specific legal definition, which I will go ahead and just read part of it. The convention, Article 2 of the convention, I should say, defines genocide to mean any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And acts that lists are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mentally harmed members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, that in part is very important, um, particularly in the current circumstances, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group." So I think it, it, it's kind of useful to think about this offense as having kind of three core elements that, that you have to show to hit the kind of legal standard. One is that there has to be a group of the type that's protected, a national group, ethnic group, or religious group. Um, national group usually means a group with a particular like type of national identity. It's a little bit of a term of our, uh, international law. You know, it's not just any members, people who tend to be members of a state. Instead, it's a community that defines itself by its national aspirations and claims. You then have to have genocidal acts, for lack of a way to put it. Some of those offenses, which it's worth noting, overlap with a lot of very violent conduct that is also prohibited by international law as a war crime or as a crime against humanity Two other categories of of equally, at least within the eyes of the international law, prohibited and uh, forbidden acts. But it's, again, these sorts of acts of violence, although not all, all of them are inherently violent, like relocating people. Is not necessarily inherently violent. Sterilization can also be a genocidal act in certain contexts. And then the third element, which is the trickiest one, is this n- intent. International tribunals have applied who have applied this have generally really focused on the intent standard because it's often the hardest one to prove. And they have basically settled on the standard saying, well, because there is so much overlap between genocide and other international offenses, crimes against humanity, war crimes. In many cases, the intent element is really what sets it apart. And, you know, they've they set actually a fairly high bar, a bar that's proven controversial in certain circles that says essentially, like, you really need to show that intent is there, not only there, and it's kind of the, if you're in so far as you're inferring intent, because you almost always have to infer intent in any sort of criminal prosecution, domestic or international, you know, it has to be a clear sign that this was the intent almost to the point of it being the only possible explanation for what's happening. Uh, I don't think it goes quite that far, but close to it to say that it has to be clear this is the policy driving and the purpose driving these sorts of actions. That's the latter point is the point that I think is is in question in Ukraine, and that we're going to see a lot of debate over in the coming weeks. I don't think anyone disputes that there is certainly a national Ukrainian identity. There's an ethnic Ukrainian identity and a national identity um, that overlaps substantially, probably not entirely. One or both could be subject to genocidal acts and targeting um, certainly meet that first requirement. Genocidal acts are absolutely happening in terms of the violent acts we see also forced relocations happening in ukraine any of these could be satisfy that second element of a genocide offense if you will and the third question is just intent are we intentionally provoking uh whereas russia I say intentionally pursuing a campaign intended to destroy in whole or in part one of those two communities the ethnic or the national ukrainian identity communities and that's the trick here. You know, We see a lot of actions happening on the parts of the ground of these genocidal actions, but I'm not sure yet there's enough evidence that is happening at a systematic level that it's clearly a public policy of Russia. But we, we may need more evidence on that. Maybe there is evidence of that. I'm just not aware of it yet. We're still piecing together what happened in some of these territories. Uh, we see a lot of discussion of things that sound very genocidal happening more and more in Russian media. President Putin has various times said things that sound genocidal about purging the state of Nazis, about destroying the idea of any sort of Ukrainian identity. Some of those actions in and of themselves may be prohibited by the Genocide Convention, which prohibits not just the act of genocide, but also direct and public incitement to genocide. So those people might be guilty of that internationally wrongful act. But it doesn't mean it's inherent. It is actually collectively the act of genocide, which is, which is separate because you have to tie those actions to the acts of violence being committed, the genocidal acts. And that's the question, like what, how much is the actual policy driving these acts motivated by this desire to destroy this population? You know, most lawyers approach this very conservatively because they see it's a really high evidentiary bar. There's also concern about raising a lot of public expectations by calling something genocide and then seeing people acquitted of it, international tribunals, or not charged with it, international tribunals. Um, It brings the credibility of those tribunals uh, and of international accountability processes into doubt, or at least there's concern at will. So people tend to approach genocide declarations pretty conservatively, um, even in the U.S. government. Uh, there's also a question the Genocide Convention obligates some actions to try and prevent genocide when you recognize it. So there's always this worry that somehow people are going to feel compelled to do something they wouldn't want to do by acknowledging it. Although, frankly, I think those concerns are overblown and not really what's driving the reservation about a lot of this stuff for a lot of states because it doesn't really obligate them to do anything too specific, certainly no more than what's being done already in Ukraine, probably. The Other element, though, on this flip side is that you have a lot of people who, A, think of genocide as more of a social phenomenon, and so start talking about things that we would say, yeah, maybe this is part of what we see as a legal definition of genocide, and they see, well, this has the social character of genocide. This has a lot of parallels to what we consider other genocides, and I draw these parallels without necessarily thinking of it in the legal element standpoint. I don't think that's necessarily a wrong way to think about it, but it's just not the way we think about it as the original crime of genocide, as the term was kind of originally deployed. And then you have people using it instrumentally to say, rightly or wrongly, saying, we're going to talk about genocide because we want to bring attention to the situation and build pressure to act. That's obviously a totally appropriate thing to do where you're sure there's a genocide as you get less sure about where the evidence actually supports that being true. Probably becomes more problematic at a certain point. Um, so, where exactly that threshold is as an appropriate policy or not, or strategy or not, I think is a subject for debate uh, and a little factual specific. So that's where we are on the spectrum. I'm of the view that there's certainly a possibility genocide is happening in Ukraine, but that there's the intent element of it is still needs to be developed a lot more. Uh, but that's based off my you know only partial understanding of the facts of what's happening there. Uh, other people may have more, but I think it's the reason why we see a lot of even the U.S. government saying we want to be more conservative in deploying this term, even though President Biden got ahead of them and said, yeah, I think this is a genocide. And then subsequently kind of had to walk that back and say, well, maybe not a legal genocide, but that's certainly how I feel about it, that this looks and feels like a genocide.
3: So I I have a question about the specifics of the definition here. And this is a a genuine historical question, and I, I don't know the answer. So Russia, if I understand correctly, seems to be saying Ukraine does not exist. And the Ukrainian people do not exist. And that, as far as I can tell, is not because it's saying we want to get rid of the Ukrainian people. It's saying Ukraine is the same as Russia. There is actually no distinction between Ukrainian identity and Russian identity. We're the same or that Ukrainian identity should be swallowed up within a a broader Russian identity. When I think of recent examples of genocides, well, I guess all genocides are necessarily recent, given the, you know, under the the definition of the term, given how recently it was coined, it has to do with one group killing another group that is explicitly identified as separate, even if that group was not necessarily separate to begin with. That the defining the undesirability, the, and the the need to purge a foreign element, even though, you know, Hutu and Tutsi identity in Rwanda, for example, were actually very recent and historically contingent. You could say the same for how Germany defined Jewish identity as something separate from from German identity. I can't think of any examples of a genocide committing that act, As part of swallowing up one group in another. I mean, even if you think about systematic rape, for example, in the war in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s by uh, uh, Serbian soldiers of, of Muslim Bosnian women, my understanding is that that is usually understood as trying to stamp out the Muslim Bosnian bloodline and sort of add, you know, create more Serbs, essentially, rather than saying, you are the same thing as us. Does that bear on how we understand this at all? And also, am I misunderstanding this? Because I, I may well be. I mean, you're, you're not wrong that the, the rhetoric in, in Russia has become increasingly frightening and extreme. So it's possible that I've missed something. But, but this did, has puzzled me as I've been thinking this through.
1: I think it's a great question, and, and it really hits at some of the tensions between these ideas, particularly this idea of national identity and how it fits into this framework. I mean, a part of the definition of the genocide is an intent to destroy, right, in whole or in part. And then you have to do it through these largely, but again, not entirely violent acts with that sort of dissent policy. And so the question then says, well, if you are you know preventing the realization of a national identity by uh you know engaging in political measures intending to deter that from actually manifesting as a state is that amount to genocide because you're destroying that part by converting people to a different view and there's certain court measures where certainly we say that's the true so an enthusiastic example it's really tragic and awful one um is like the Yazidis in iraq right so there was an islamic state marched into iraq they committed what the united states government at least recognizes as a genocide against the Yazidis, and they basically kidnapped Huge swaths of the women took them in, essentially as slaves, and tried to marry them off or, you know, engage them with men in the community to try and wipe out the identity without actually killing those all those people. The men were mostly killed; uh, older boys were mostly killed um, where they fell into their hands. But the women were actually kidnapped and used as, as slaves and, and sexual slaves in many cases. Uh, and that was an effort to kind of like eliminate that identity very coercively. Uh, obviously, a very violent and inappropriate act. But that is is about a how you you're incorporating, forcing this identity and you're trying to wipe out this identity. Is that what Russia is trying to do here? And then how do you distinguish that from just a territorial dispute where countries actually have a dispute over, you know, whether a state is a state or not? Legitimate case, which do have, like you think of Israel-Palestine, right? Like there's a legitimate dispute there. Some people would say that is a genocide in part based off arguments like this uh, about the suppression of a national identity, you know, I think a lot of people would say that that's probably not going that far. If you don't see the same scale and systematic genocidal acts, even though there may be many other wrongful and in, including legally wrongful acts happening there, it just doesn't rise quite to that um, systematic scale of intent, but it is a tricky line there a little bit. I mean, that's why people are going to be able to make these arguments a little bit, kind of no matter what happens, because there is a little bit of a fuzziness around the categories The general legal approach, by my understanding, and I'm not an international criminal law expert, so I I may be fuzzing this, is that this is part of the reason you have the very high bar um, for the mens rea element. Um, There has to be very clear intent that you are doing this to destroy a part of this population, to destroy this identity. Um, And that's part of an effort to distinguish genocide from other sorts of disputes that otherwise might fudge or fuzz into that category because of the overlapping concept of identity and national identity, things like that.
2: Yeah, to, to follow up on Scott's point, I think another way of maybe saying what Scott just said is that the definition of genocide, the legal definition in the Genocide Convention, is a relatively broad one, and not just broad in terms of the the intent that qualifies for genocide, but also the degree to which that intent is effectuated. Because throughout the Genocide Convention definition, there's these in you know in whole or in part provisos, right, which again are very very important. Now, from the perspective of a kind of a relatively capacious definition, that makes sense. And it also makes sense because it is hard to draw any sort of strict line and to say, well, you know, this amount of abuse of a population and, terror, you know, and terrorizing a population and destruction of their homeland and et cetera, et cetera, is you know, definitely not genocide. And this is definitely genocide. So it, it makes sense in that context because of that to have this sort of more spectrum based definition. I think the problem is that there's a mismatch between the legal term, the legal definition of genocide and the popular understanding of genocide. I think the popular understanding of genocide is much more as a binary, something either is genocide and therefore it is almost by definition, the worst imaginable thing you could like possibly think of, right? It is the greatest crime, right? And here, obviously the legacy of the Holocaust plays a huge role, but also more recent genocides, like the genocide in Rwanda, for example, and one that requires the greatest and most sort of immediate response, almost no matter what the the costs that are, because it's this sort of most heinous crime. To me, the question is not, you know, should we call this genocide or not? You know, we can define terms however we want to. It's what are the practical consequences of defining this as as genocide? And that's kind of where I want to take the, the conversation next, you know. In, in a sense, whether to call a particular act genocide is kind of an act of almost think of as prosecutorial discretion on the part of the international community, right? And it raises questions like, well, you know, what does calling something genocide mean for the possibility of a negotiated resolution to the conflict? What does calling something genocide mean if it's not going to be followed by any sort of action that seems commensurate with the grave offense of genocide. What does that mean to future situations where you have, you know, perhaps an even stronger case for genocide, but the word has been used in enough cases that it no longer carries with it the reflexive, well, if it's genocide we must act. So there really do seem to be to be these very important policy implications of calling something or not genocide, and that does fundamentally strike me as more relevant than a parsing of any particular definition.
3: I I take your point. At the same time, though, I mean, I wonder if we've kind of already crossed into a world where calling something genocide does not necessarily necessitate a policy response. I mean, Rwanda (laughs) is the example of a genocide in which the international community kind of sat on its hands, right? And so I do wonder, once you have that, obviously the Yugoslavia example is a little more complicated. There are a lot of arguments right now about whether China's Efforts to essentially destroy a Uyghur identity in Northwest China and Xinjiang constitutes a genocide. No one's taking action against that at the same level. So I do think that the word has a particularly freighted meaning. But I, I mean, maybe it's degraded to the point where it doesn't have that same weight.
2: Yeah. No. I think you make a very fair point about Rwanda. I think Rwanda is somewhat distinguishable in the sense that I think looking back on it now, Rwanda is viewed generally as an example of where we did not intervene and we should have intervened, right? And there's an increasing consensus that that was a mistake. Whereas I think, you know, either in the case of the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs or the Russian treatment of the Ukrainians, which, just to be very clear, is heinous, and is heinous whether or not you call it genocide, right? There, I think it's less obvious that the right response would be to militarily intervene in a way that would actually stop this, right? Because that would lead to a third world war with a great power, right? Now, we can have that debate whether we should do that. It's less self-evidently so. Now, that leads to this very awkward situation of maybe we should only call things genocide when the perpetrator is weak enough that we will actually go and do something about it. And that is kind of perverse. And that does seem to be where my logic is leading me, which maybe is a comment that there's something very wrong with, with, my, with my premises. But it does seem to be sort of inescapable that um, you can either have genocide be the worst thing imaginable, and we'll never have it again. And and it will come with this special moral opprobrium, or it can have a potentially broader, maybe even more potentially accurate definition of genocide. But then it's not going to be doing the sort of rallying effect that necessarily you want it to. That just seems like a very sticky trade off that I, I don't quite know how to wrap my head around.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. On the other hand, I, I don't think we can disaggregate this analysis from the fact that Ukrainians have been very effective in presenting themselves as European and part of Europe and white, and in many cases, blonde. And Rwanda was a genocide that was happening on a different continent to people who were not white. I mean, even the Bosnian Muslims were Muslim. I think it, it, you know, when a lot of the conversation you see that you saw early on in the war among Europeans was the sort of, this is happening? In Europe, and of course, I understand the the very particular historical echoes of a land war in Europe in which Russia is a major party. Like that, there is a reason <laughs> why that is particularly alarming. But I do think it's worth thinking about which genocides or which things that we call genocide generate uh, immediate response or political will for immediate response, and which don't.
2: So I, I totally agree with you that the fact that Ukrainians are are white and European means that the response has been in some sense more solicitous than uh, in other cases, right? And I think you especially see that with the willingness of other European countries like Poland and Hungary to accept Ukrainian refugees when they were much less willing to, let's say, accept Syrian refugees. But I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't want to push that too far. I mean, I, I don't think the fact that Ukrainians are are white is, is is enough to convince anyone to wage a hot war with Russia over them.
3: No, no, to be clear, I mean, I, I, I think that the weight of public sympathy tilts toward them more easily in the West.
1: You know, I'll just say a lot of these problems that tie to the definition of genocide do, or maybe at least should also tie to the idea of war crimes and crimes against humanity, right? Which are the two other categories of crimes that are covered by the International Criminal Court, uh, Rome Statute. Again, equally legally prohibited, not really supposed to have any difference in moral weight. Genocide just captures the public imagination in a certain way. And three. Skewed lens, as Quintus I think very very aptly noted, but that's part of the reason why lawyers at least often like fight back against it because there's no reason why somebody committing a crimes against the humanity, you know savagely butchering a population of a town or a city of civilians, is any less objectionable or any less prohibitive and warrants any less strong reaction. Than uh, something that may have been motivated by genocide, just based off the the perceived intent of the actor, it is genocide. The reason we have genocide is because it's a different sort of crime um, that. Doesn't totally overlap with crimes against humanity and had particularly, frankly, like seminal role in the 20th century when we were forming our international institutions and so it was at, at the front of mind. But that that's kind of the resistance here. I'll note one other institutional reason why I get very nervous about the talk of genocide, frankly, particularly by the Ukrainian government, which has really leaned into the rhetoric the last few months. That's because they're in an ongoing dispute about the definition of genocide in the context of the Genocide Convention before the International Court of Justice right now. They were able to secure the ICJ exercising jurisdiction over this dispute over whether the Russian claims that the Ukrainians were committing genocide against you know Russian national identity and ethnic identity uh, Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine. That was part of what Putin said was the basis for him taking this military action. And that triggered ICJ exercising jurisdiction under this very unlikely ex-ante seeming uh, jurisdictional hook but that they nonetheless persuaded them to do, that has them looking at this term saying, well, is Russia right that genocide is happening here and are they justified in taking this action? I don't know if the court's going to be able to resist it if the Russians come back and say, but the Ukrainians are saying this too, you should cast judgment on that review as well. It won't be as consequential because part of what the court is doing is evaluating, well, is the Russian military action appropriate? And They've already passed provisional measures saying it should stop. Until they can resolve the dispute, um, which are being ignored. But doesn't mean that they're not in the merits phase going to look at these Ukrainian claims as well and say, like, well, does this actually meet this very, very high legal standard? And do we have enough evidence of the intent? And that's tricky. And do you want to muddy this moral picture by looking like you're in a similar boat of making these sorts of claims? It's problematic to me. I mean, Russia is doing horrible, horrible things in Ukraine. There's a very strong evidentiary and legal case for that. It's very clean, very straightforward. And the Ukrainians, get a lot out of being on the right moral side of that equation as cleanly as possible. Um, it's a big reason you have such strong unified support for them internationally, and, and I hesitate to muddy that picture. Then again, the ICJ proceedings are still a ways down the road before you get to any of that stage. So maybe it's a short-term, long-term trade-off um, calculus, I suspect, is is how Ukrainians who are approaching this a little more instrumentally are thinking about it. Well, let's take this moment to transition from talking about one Severe human rights violation, maybe arguably the most severe among the most severe category, to another set of activities that we see that might be facilitating some human rights violations in different parts of the world, and that is this story that came out just yesterday in the New Yorker, written by Ronan Farrow, my my law school classmate uh, who has gone on to do quite impressive things,
2: putting the rest of us to shame. Yeah, your law school classmate who makes you feel bad about yourself every day. I, I have my own law school classmates like that. To be clear, it's, I'm not just picking on you. Most of my law school classmates do, unfortunately, <laughs> but that's okay.
3: That's okay. Luckily, I have an inferiority complex, and I didn't even go to law school.
1: <laughs> that's, again, my, we is this cheaper. Theme, our theme is back about going to law school. I like law school, for the record, kids out there listening, <laughs> for whatever it matters. Well, that's a topic for another time. For this topic, in this story, Ronan got a first-person interview with the CEO of NSO Group, this fairly controversial Israeli firm which has developed a software, the Pegasus software, uh, among other software, this is just the most controversial one, that has played this central role in allowing many foreign governments access to the iPhones of political rivals, political dissidents, human rights activists, and many others. It is in part regulated by the Israeli state, um, that's a big defensive theme. This company comes back to time and again, saying we kind of coordinate hand in glove with the Israeli government in terms of them licensing who we're allowed to export this technology to. It's very similar to um, U.S. licensing regimes in the United States uh, and export controls around sensitive technologies here. Uh, at least it seems like seems like that is from the description. Uh, but nonetheless, it's proven really controversial, including at the point now where it's being blacklisted by the United States facing civil litigation here, potentially criminal litigation at some point for their role in hacking into one of these phones and engagement in different activities, some which are very nefarious, most famously, perhaps, the Jamal Khashoggi killing uh, perpetrated by, as most suspect at this point, the Saudi government a few years ago. Alan, I want to start with you on this. So the story does this amazing job digging into this technical fight between these two sides, between big tech companies like Facebook and Apple uh, and their teams of engineers and the NSO group engineers, where it's this constant cat and mouse game of them kind of chasing each other. But it spends less time on the legal dispute part of this, which is kind of more of interest to us, because NSO Group is being sued by both Apple and WhatsApp slash Facebook, its parent company, or Meta now, I suppose. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the legal terrain this debate is happening on? And how does it impact how these actors are are engaging
2: on this topic? Sure, yeah. So I mean, it's it's a it's a great piece. I highly recommend people people read it. It's just excellent journalism and and you know written in usual beautiful. Ronan Farrow, New Yorker style. Um, and there are lots of pieces of it that are worth talking about. Um, but to, to respond to the question about the, the legal f- framework here. So, you know, one of the ways in which the companies are trying to fight back uh, against NSO Group is by suing them, uh, suing them under a variety of different uh, statutes, uh, You know, most notably the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the main federal Anti-hacking uh, statute, and there was a uh, we did a podcast a, a, a few uh, months ago with some, with some folks about this, so we can we can link to that in the in the show notes. Um, you know, one thing that NSO Group tried to do initially was they tried to plead uh, sovereign immunity. They were saying, like, look, we are acting on behalf of foreign states, and therefore you can't sue us. And the courts, I think, rightly not accept that defense. So, you know, there are various lawsuits going through the, the the process of adjudicating whether or not NSO Group software is hacking of, let's say, Apple systems or of, you know, WhatsApp systems. I, I think this raises interesting legal questions. Um, I think it's far from clear that NSO Group's conduct falls within the statute because what NSO Group would say is we're not hacking Apple. We are simply um, another program that is on a device that is owned by a person. We are hacking that person. Like, they, they will admit that. Uh, but we are not hacking Apple, right? And, you know, it, this depends on, in part, a parsing of the terms of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is not the clearest statute uh, ever written. But I think, ultimately, it, it, it's, it comes down to the sort of policy question of whether or not one wants to allow large tech companies to use the law to prevent this sort of industry of, spyware hacking manufacturers. And I think it's very unclear, I think, what the right answer here is, frankly. And in particular, I want to kind of put this in the broader context of what is uh, often called the going dark debate, right? This kind of decade or decades in some sense long fight that uh, we've been having between sort of law enforcement and governments on the one side and tech companies and digital civil liberties folks on the other side about whether or not increasing use of encryption and other secure technologies has made it impossible for law enforcement to to do its job. Now, I, I've been involved in one way, both in the government and now sort of as a law professor and, um, in this fight for a long time. It's miserable. It's like maybe the most miserable fight in tech policy. And, you know, I will say, you know, just bracketing the question of whether or not the problem is as big as law enforcement claims, whether the whether they really are going dark. One response that many in the tech industry and in the civil liberties sector have made to proposed mandates for government access, you know, so-called backdoors, has been, and this has been made, I think, most thoroughly by Susan Landau, who's written about this for Lawfare, uh, and, and others that she's written with, is to say, look, it's a huge mistake to make companies build in backdoors into their software, because those backdoors will be insecure, they'll be abused, et cetera, et cetera. It's also not necessary to do so, because all technology has its vulnerabilities. And there is this robust market of people looking into vulnerabilities to create solutions for law enforcement to access these technologies, right? So just use those vulnerabilities that exist anyway where law enforcement needs access, right? Um, And that, of course, is exactly what NSO Group is doing. And so what I find to be a little frustrating is whatever you think of what NSO Group is doing, Part of the reason they're doing it is because this is, in a sense, what the large tech companies have signaled that they are willing, at least in some respects, to tolerate. That they do not want to accept government mandates for backdoors. They know that their systems are buggy to an extent. And this is kind of the long-run equilibrium that doesn't really satisfy anyone. So then when these companies turn around and try to sue NSO group, though I understand why they're doing that, right? And I understand why they don't want their vulnerabilities exploited. That then, I think, raises the question of, okay, but what would you rather governments do? Do you then want governments to force you to make your own backdoors? There's, there's sort of no good answer here. But I, I think, you know, one way or the other, this, this will continue to be a, a problem because uh, these companies aren't going away and the need for this isn't going away either.
0: And when you say the need for this, I
3: think that may be a useful sort of thing to zero in on here. Because what you're describing in terms of developing ways to get into devices is a very different thing substantively than the conduct that Farrow is concerned about in the New Yorker piece, right? He's concerned about hacking of of dissidents, of of politicians, including by authoritarian governments. So is there a way to draw a substantive distinction between those two uses of this kind of technology? Or is your point that once you've said, once you've opened the door, as it were to this, this kind of activity, that it's impossible to draw a substantive distinction or a distinction between good or bad use cases?
2: Yeah, no, that's, that is a, a great point. And this is actually one of my problems with the article, which is that the framing of it, which starts with the surveillance of Catalan independence politicians by the Spanish government, it strikes me as kind of a red herring. Like, whatever you think about Catalan independence, whatever you think about what the Spanish government is doing, that's not, that's fundamentally a question about is Spain a liberal democracy acting under its values and norms and laws, right? That is actually like totally orthogonal to the question of, are they buying stuff from NSO group, right? You know, technology is not neutral, right? Technology is not neutral, but it also is not inherently necessarily, right? Only used for good or only used for bad. And so I think it's a mistake to single out the, you know, things like spyware when, of course, we've always had various types of hacking, right? We've had people that make wiretaps. We have people that make lockpicking equipment. It's, It's sort of, I think it's odd to, to, to say, you know, we have to pass judgment on this whole category of tools. Now, what I don't think you can do is I don't think you can create a technology that can only be used for good. That's what you cannot do. Once you have created the spyware technology, right, it can be used for really good reasons, counterterrorism, fighting crime, whatever the case may be, fighting child exploitation can also be used for bad reasons. That's why I think the discussion has to be much more about what are the policies that companies like NSO Group use when selling their products to governments. More importantly, because even if NSO Group improved its policies, there'd be other less scrupulous companies that sold to anyone. What do we expect of governments and how they use that? And then in terms of how do you distinguish good uses from bad uses? Well, you just do it based on, I think, the substance, right? I think it's bad if a democratic country like Spain is using surveillance techniques in violation of their own laws or of appropriate human rights law against Catalonian independence. I think it's totally fine if a company uses the most invasive possible spyware to go after some international terrorist or international criminal organization. I will admit that I find the focus on NSO Group itself to be a little odd and honestly plays into, I think, a very unhealthy idea that all of these important questions are fundamentally questions for the tech industry to sort out, right? The tech industry has created a thing. It was going to be inevitable that they created it. You know they're going to have to they're going to have to sleep with that as best as they can, but ultimately it's for democracies to decide how they want to use this technology,
3: yeah, I mean, I will say without letting n s o group off the hook for the many many bad things that they've enabled it does it is striking to me how quickly and dramatically public opinion has turned against them for something that they were doing, as I understand it for like quite a while um before people got mad about it i mean there there does seem to be this way in which they've become this particular lightning rod. Again, not saying that they shouldn't get criticism because they should, but the, the single-minded focus on them is, does strike me as somewhat odd.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, it may have something to do with just the degree of scrutiny, the amount we know about what they're doing at this point and how they've gotten tangled up in these high-profile cases. You know, what's interesting here, I think, and this may intersect a little bit with this, is is what the regulatory regime we set up to answering the questions that you're you're posing, Alan, about how the technology is used and whether it's good and, and bad, how it fits in here. because because And that that is really something that actually the article gets at pretty well, I think, uh, from the perspective of actually this NSO group executive, where he makes the point, look, everything we do is hand in glove with the Israeli government, uh, more or less approved by them. Uh, The Israeli government looks at this through a lens of, not unlike how the United States looks at it, strategic exports of national interests and then kind of reputational harm, like kind of like soft power national interests, probably more emphasis on the former than the latter, judging from some of the clients they've dealt with this technology on, but that they use it kind of strategically and saying, well, we have the strategic sector that can do this work. And that means that's the Israeli government making these choices about what are good uses and bad uses and good users and bad users. And, the CEO of this company says, well, the United States, why do they have a problem with that? Israel is one of its closest allies. Every country we sold this technology to is a government the United States also deals with, like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE. And there's an argument to be made there. That's that's certainly right. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that the United States would go to these measures with those governments. Of course, relationships aren't binary that way, um, nor do governments always reveal the types of engagements they have with different types of of allies and other states of different stripes. But the key point is, you're, you're delegating that determination, right? These different companies in different jurisdictions, that jurisdiction now gets to determine how that technology is used. And the CEO makes the point look, if we disappear tomorrow, there are dozens of other companies doing this who are way less scrupulous than we are. Uh, particularly, he points to the Chinese government has lots of state owned enterprises that are selling this technology all across Africa to all sorts of governments, and they're going to fill in this market gap. So, isn't it better that we step into this mar- market gap and are the ones providing this? And this kind of is where I keep coming back to this question, saying, well, how do we want to market those dynamics? And particularly, frankly, how do the big tech companies want to monitor, like manage these dynamics? I keep coming back to the fact that at a certain point, The tech companies seem to be acting as if they think they can close this door permanently one day or at least set up a process by which they can make these these exploits less and less common and more of a minimal problem. But that hasn't really been true. Like Going dark never really manifested because these things have been continually developed and it's this constant struggle. At a certain point, would the tech companies want to retain control by adopting their own backdoor? To kill the market for all this competition to get these products by getting all the big spenders, meaning a lot of the sovereign, sovereign governments who might want to do this at least for more acceptable purposes to start steering business to them. And so they can control these avenues and maybe get some of those governments willing to crack down and tighten the legal regime that prevents these third party actors from using their IP, which I know is part of their lawsuits around this about building out these exploits. And it kind of makes sense to me. Um, and I'm not. I'm curious as to, that isn't a direction that we end up drifting here. These tech companies made a very big early buy-in saying security is going to be a big part of our marketing to our clients. We've already seen that come under assault for some compromises made in China and compromises made in other markets. You know, maybe some sort of voluntary backdoor is going to be something that tech companies find appealing if they really don't have any other way to regulate and limit the market for all these private companies developing
2: this. I think the problem, though Scott, is is that the the companies are themselves hemmed in uh, and prevented from more aggressively exploring their own backdoors by both kind of internal company culture. There are plenty of engineers at Apple and who just like revolt if that happened, and also kind of the broader. Intellectual digital civil society ecosystem, and I think a good example of this is actually a proposal that that Apple made a few months ago. I don't remember exactly when this was now, uh, but they were going to release client-based scanning of iPhone images um, to find child exploitation material, and it was actually a, a, a kind of almost a breathtakingly aggressive. Back door. I mean, for lack of a better term, it was undermining a key tenant of their promises about antenna encryption and, and so on. Um, the plan was savaged and there were some problems with it. And ultimately, uh, Apple backed off on that. And I think that really shows the, the tricky position that uh, companies like Apple and, and Facebook are, are in, right? Because on the one hand, I think you're right, there's no realistic future in which they can get rid of all of these vulnerabilities in their software. But the problem is, even if they were able to, then the going dark problem would really become a problem. Right, uh, and then we'd be right back here, and so this is why I, I think that looking at companies like NSO, while they they make very interesting stories, and it is just a very interesting organization, it's like it's good journalism, right? Um, I think it misses the forest for the trees, right? And I think uh, ultimately this is this is a, a matter that has to be resolved at the state level, right? Both in terms of national regulations and then international agreement and and, and cooperation. Um, and, and I will say, one of the things that I find very surprising about the discourse about NSO group is not just to Quintus' point that they've been vilified so quickly, though they have been, and I don't know, maybe they even deserve it, who knows, uh, but that Israel, the, the government of Israel has somehow managed to s- like stay out of this debate. Like, to me, this is so much more about Israel than it is about NSO group, because not only is... Israel the one that is deciding who NSO Group can export to. But NSO Group exists because the cooperation in Israel between the tech sector and the intelligence and the military is just much more integrated for a variety of cultural and kind of geostrategic reasons than is the case in the United States. So like if you have a problem with this, just like sort of take it up with the Israeli government. And it is very strange to me that we're spending all this time focusing on NSO Group when the People that are actually in charge of this are the Israeli government. Now, that's a separate question of what the Israeli government should do. I think it really is a hard policy choice. But this kind of obsessive focus on NSO group does, to me, strike me as as kind of weirdly myopic.
3: Speaking of myopia, let us move on to our third topic, which is a recent decision, I believe, on April 18th by a Florida District Judge Catherine Mizell saying that the Biden administration does not have the power to mandate masks on interstate travel. The opinion, I would say, is, uh, let's call it a doozy. My notes on it have a lot of question marks, a lot of exclamation marks, some interrobangs. I don't know how you actually pronounce that. There's a lot going on, suffice to say. Um, It involves a lengthy uh, explanation of the difference between cleansing and keeping clean. I would highly recommend it to anyone who just wants to fully go down a rabbit hole. Uh, But the, the long and the short of it is essentially that the opinion means that the mask mandate that had previously been in place is no longer in place. Uh, Lots of airlines, Uber, suddenly lifted their mask policy. There are videos of people literally ripping off their masks in midair, which frankly seems a bit much. And now, according to this judge, not only uh, did the CDC not have the power to impose a mask mandate now, it wouldn't even have had the power to do so in, say, March 2020, when the pandemic was Really getting rolling, so there is truly no end of things to discuss here, Alan and Scott. I I know that unfortunately you two have also spent your time reading this opinion. Scott, let's let's go to you first. What did you make of it? This
1: is a wild opinion, um, mostly because it takes a statute and embrace uses these highly technical textual like canons of statutory interpretation, although not super aptly to reach a very counterintuitive and very odd reading of a statute. And this is uh, for folks, for folks who, who want to follow along with our discussion. It's 42 U.S. Code, Section 264. Everyone, everyone
2: open your hymnal to the CDC <laughs> chapter. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, and so it is this law that is, uh, dates back to the 1930s, if I recall, that is essentially the authority used by health authorities to do a variety of sorts of measures, and it authorizes this long list of measures that includes inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, which is the one at issue here, pest extermination, destruction of infected articles, et cetera, comma, and other measures comma as in his referring to the surgeon general, judgment may be necessary. And then there are, which I think is the wackiest part of this decision, there are three other sections here, four other sections, excuse me, that all refer back and limit measures adopted under this section. Which is Section A, the thing I just read, is the only section that authorized any of this that talked about things that obviously aren't any of those six things listed, such as detaining people and apprehending people and holding them in custody and imposing more limits on it. It's almost as if they suggested other measures meant other measures beyond the scope of these six things that were listed. But the judge rejects that It says essentially, no, those other sessions actually independently authorize the detention of people. Hint, they do not. Uh, they're referring back to the measures in Section A. And then goes on and says, well, the government says is all an expert of a sanitation measure. So let me go look at how sanitation is used most of the time uh, in this context and refers to a database of the use of sanitation and says essentially, look, sanitation really means cleaning things. It doesn't really mean things that are meant to keep things clean or keep things restricted. And then she did, it says, kind of confuses what masks do, basically saying masks don't clean or filter anything, which is, that's exactly what they do. Um, they keep, you know, breath particles from transferring to other third parties and sneezing and coughing and all the other things that why we wear masks uh, and have worn masks for many years in other circumstances. And essentially she concludes that, well, because of all these reasons, th- this statute didn't actually authorize the deployment of wearing masks um she also invokes the major questions doctrine this emerging robert's court era determination that essentially says well we don't defer to the federal government uh, on the interpretation of statutes where we really think it's a big social question they're addressing it's a very ill-defined and frankly like problematic at least in terms of its Lack of scoping, as evidenced here, um, because what is a major question? No one's offered a definition of this, and it basically provides a backdoor by which judges can just evade having to defer to the government, which is normally what you do when the government's interpreting a statute that's open-ended in its terms. Like this, the judge goes even further to say, "Nope, I don't even find this statute to be ambiguous." That means the government's definition. We're only allowed to—they're only allowed to fill in ambiguities. This statute's clearly, when they talk about sanitation, there's no universe in which they could have been talking about masks, guys. That's completely insane. <laughs> Masks are sanitation. Also, by her logic, you also could not actually require people to, for example, wear rubber gloves while inspecting or doing things in, in the course of you know any of these activities. That's the same thing. Rubber gloves are those keep things from getting dirty, contaminating things. And rubber gloves are, are their sanitation gloves. They're like the most core sanitation measure you get in public health context or other contexts. It's a pretty wild decision, in my view, and it really is a demonstration about how Textualism, which has been, is kind of the more modern conventional wisdom for approaching statutes in particular, and was embraced, particularly by legal conservatives and then kind of by everyone at this point, on the logic that it restricts judges and keeps judges from, you know, employing the law in strange ways, actually isn't that restrictive. Um, You know, you can, particularly when you have these overlapping and not super well-defined canons of statutory interpretation, judges can use those to wield all sorts of very counterintuitive statutory readings um, that if they're willing to enforce them and embrace the potential reputational consequence of doing that, they may be willing to enact. And this seems like an example of that. Notably, the, the check against that weird reading of statutes is that usually in the appellate process, you have to get that reading through several layers of judges. Um, and so it's, we are waiting to see if the Biden administration will seek to appeal this and then also stay this holding um, so that they can keep the mask mandate in place. They haven't filed yet, but this decision just came out yesterday at the time of recording this Tuesday morning. Um, and so you know we will hopefully hear soon whether they intend to appeal that or not. There are strategic reasons why they might want to. I've seen bandied about. I tend to think that this decision strikes so at the core of the federal government's public health authorities that they would feel, even if they might rather in public conversation move away from the mask mandate, as very well may be the case, I suspect they're going to feel pressured to appeal this just because it if you take this logic seriously, I know this isn't a binding opinion, but it's hard that it's on the books. If you take this logic seriously, federal government really can't do a lot about public health situations. And we're going to keep encountering public health situations for the next several years as we continue to deal with variants of the pandemic. So I'm expecting an appeal, but I, I'm curious whether you, what you all think.
2: Yeah, Scott, I think that's a great summary of the opinion. And I'm also expecting an appeal. And And I think, like you, I think the government has to appeal this. And again, it's just important to underscore what a giant swing this opinion is. I mean, I I teach, it's always dangerous to ask me to to talk about opinions like this on on a podcast, because I teach statutory interpretation and and administrative law uh, to to, uh, uh, law students. And so I could literally teach, I actually went and looked at my syllabus, I could literally teach the entire 25 lectures of my course literally just on this opinion alone, right? It just hits every single beat uh so so thoroughly.
3: But how would you grade it is the <laughs> question.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um you know, what I would say is, you know, what's interesting, I think many interesting things about this opinion, but it kind of goes out of its way to be as broad as possible. Because the front half of the opinion is all about the substantive power the CDC has. Um, and that's the part that I think has has shocked so many people. You know, I'm on a bunch of admin law professor listservs and people, I think it is not an exaggeration to say, are losing their goddamn minds about this uh, opinion. The back half is actually about some interesting administrative law procedural questions about whether or not the CDC was allowed to dispense with the noted the public notice and comment that it usually has to go through um, in this case, whether or not the CDC's decision was, quote, arbitrary and capricious in the types of exemptions it made. And I think a decision could have been, could have reached the same results just on these procedural grounds. There would have still have been a bunch of grumbling, but I don't think there would have been nearly this sort of outrage. And I think the government, had this been just a procedural decision, probably would have swallowed it. Because frankly, the mask mandate was never that popular, and it was probably going to go away in a couple of weeks anyway. And I think even folks, even a lot of folks on the left think that that a lot of this is increasingly COVID theater, et cetera, et cetera. But because the opinion is so broad on the front end about the CDC's substantive authority, I don't think the government has much of a choice, but we will see. You know, to me, what I think is notable about this opinion is, you know, it, it is a it, it is a perfect encapsulation, I think, of two decades-long shifts in conservative legal movement as it comes to statutory interpretation and, and administrative law. The first is, you know, what Scott calls textualism, but it's an odd sort of textualism because it's a sort of textualism that tortures individual words. Um, it's sort of textualism, I like to joke with my students, that like, it's why people hate lawyers. It's like exactly the four pages on what sanitation means that just like, just makes everyone hate lawyers. And, and that part of the opinion, I think, is is just frustrating to read. The the other part of the opinion, which is less frustrating because I think it actually is much more coherent, though much more damaging overall to administrative law, is this idea that anytime Congress wants to give the administrative state the power to do anything quote unquote important, and important is of course undefined here, it's going to have to do so incredibly explicitly, right? Now, unlike the sort of word torturing textualism that just, just does not make sense, I think, this is actually a substantive position um, which is related to things like the non-delegation doctrine and all sorts of conservative views on the separation of powers that makes sense. It is at least conceptually coherent right and you know, it is unsurprising that especially I think as our legal culture like all other cultures in America become polarized, you know the Republican party for its on its side is picking judges who have a particular commitment to this view now substantively, I am very much against this view, because I think that would undermine the kind of New Deal settlement that we've been living under for the last, I don't know, 80 years, and would largely cripple the administrative state. And rather than bringing power back to the quote unquote, the people just gives power to judges who are even less democratically accountable than the, the, the people are. But at least I understand in principle how one could think this. And to me, I think this is just an example, you know, at the district court level, but there are plenty of judges who believe the same at the circuit level and at the Supreme Court level. That the administrative state needs to be fundamentally deconstructed, uh, and this is what that looks like, right? This is what that this is what that that looks like, right? You know that that fills me with a lot of trepidation, but uh, it is a clear and coherent vision, although for me a very unappealing one.
3: Yeah, I think that gets to something that I have been thinking about in relation to this opinion, which is what it says about the state of the conservative legal movement more broadly and specifically about the sort of slate of judges appointed by Trump so this judge is a a trump appointee she is among a slate of quite young judges who were appointed by Trump to sort of solidify the rights control over the bench i think usually there's a, there's an idea that it's uh somewhat gauche to mention who appointed a judge in the same breath as uh, pointing out what policy outcome their decision favors. In this case, <laughs> I'll note that we we all <laughs> seem to have dispensed with that, uh, perhaps because it's just, it's impossible to understand this opinion outside the context of the very specific legal movement within these these theories were, were nurtured. But I think that, that does get to my question, which is, do we understand this as a particularly batty extension of a otherwise legitimate mode of judging or is it representative of a route that particular judges are increasingly going down my understanding is unfortunately the latter and that does make me wonder if you know we're going to see in the next few years a bunch more judges taking this approach maybe a, a Efforts to legitimize this kind of approach. Um, it seems laughable now, but look, there's a lot of things that we thought were laughable in 2016 that are now accepted.
2: Yeah, Kuta, I I agree with you, but I, I want to pause for a second to focus on what is it that is gauche, right? As you say, about pointing out the the president who appointed a judge, right? And and I think it's not that the problem is that this person was appointed by Trump and Trump is a Republican, and the Republicans have a particular constitutional vision that they are trying to implement. Because that's, of course, exactly what is supposed to happen, right? The reason that presidents appoint judges and judges don't appoint themselves, right, which is literally how other countries do it, where judges are the kind of its own internal bureaucratic class that appoints its successors, is because we think that at a certain point, constitutional law has to be responsive to democratic politics, elections have consequences, and it's a totally appropriate Way of changing constitutional law over time by getting your person elected and then having that person appoint people who are like-minded. Right? This is how FDR basically saved the New Deal by being elected enough times that he could keep just up kind of appointing New Deal justices who had a radically different constitutional understanding than was the case before. So I think the issue is not here that oh, this is a Trump-appointed judge and that's somehow bad, right? It's that this person's substantive views are bad for the country. Because Trump's substantive legal views are bad for the country because a particular extreme strand of conservative legal views are bad for the country. And I would much rather we have that fight on the merits, right, than get down this rabbit hole of, you know, is this judge, was she just selected for her political, you know, her, her legal views that corresponded with those of the, of the Republican Party? Well, yeah, but that's like the whole point. And presumably that's how Democrats are choosing judges too. And I, I hope they are. Otherwise, what the hell are they doing?
1: I think that this case is something that you can distinguish, to go back to your original question, Quinta, from some of the other measures we see in a similar direction, in that I think it's a little bit of an outlier, even in this kind of conservative pushback against the administrative state, and particularly against the mask ban. She leans really heavily on the Supreme Court case that's Cast strong doubt on whether the eviction mandate, which was enacted under the same statutory provision, would have withstood uh, scrutiny. That led the administration to eventually kind of nix it. Uh, also, I the Eleventh Circuit opinion that essentially said, you know, the same provision can't reach to limiting the cruise industry at a certain point. Um, you can't just keep banning these things ad, ad nauseum indefinitely. And you know, those are cases that you can see. Frankly, while I don't agree with them. The argument being, well, it just seems like what the government's here is really taking this other measures part of this language to a whole different dimension, to a level of social regulation. And that actually is the kind of major questions element in so far as how it's framed. Like that's what's kind of getting to is this idea that, well, if you're taking a statute and you're stretching it to a set of big social questions that affect a lot of people that the statute didn't clearly intended to reach, that's where – This we begin to exercise more scrutiny against the government's interpretation. That's just not this case. You know, masks were a core part of public health strategy in the 30s when this law was passed uh, with people who had gone through the Spanish flu and gone through similar sorts of measures, frankly, much more frequently than we had. This is not a new idea. This is about a core public health strategy. And it seems pretty clear that Congress was intending to empower the federal government to engage in certain Core public health strategies. Now, frankly, if the judge had been a little more restrained, as Alan suggested, in digging into this particular statutory measure, or maybe had hinged it more on other factors, like the fact that it's being applied nationwide pretty indiscriminately this far after the pandemic uh, started, when the numbers are way down, you know, exercise a lot scrutiny on a lot of other factors. It would be a little more something that I could see even the Supreme Court maybe buying into or other judges buying into more. But this isn't that. It's a frontal assault on the idea that this statute can ever be used to require people to wear masks. And it was enacted, you know, right after a major pandemic to empower the government to pursue public health measures. I just find that. Beyond the scope of credibility, even for a lot of conservative judges who buy into pushing back against um, the administrative state and the statutory and the federal government's ability to interpret statutes like this broadly. So, I, I, I think if they appeal, there's a good chance the Biden administration will actually win this one. Maybe they'll lose on other grounds, but at least not on the grounds that this judge has carved out. Well, for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about over the course of the week. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started with our first object lesson.
2: So my object lesson is an excellent new TV show that my wife, Hannah, uh, and I are enjoying. It's called Beforeiners, um, like before and foreigners, Beforeiners. It's a uh, Norwegian television show. It's kind of a Norwegian, apparently HBO has a Norwegian offshoot. And so they've made this great television show. And the premise is that in, you know, around the world, people are appearing just kind of like Suddenly from before times, there are people from the 19th century that are appearing. There are people from like the Vikings era that are appearing. There are people from the Stone Age that are appearing. And they're just appearing and they have to be integrated into modern society. And this is happening all over the world, but specifically in Norway, where the story is set. And that's the kind of sci fi premise. But the show is actually a kind of buddy cop procedural where you have this kind of grizzled contemporary cop and his new partner who used to be a Viking warrioress who has been transported to modern day Oslo. And yeah, the, the premise is absurd, right? Like all sci-fi premises are totally absurd, but it totally works. It's incredibly fascinating. And the nice thing about it is that like, it's, it's the best sci-fi in that it actually treats the world building seriously and really thinks about what would actually happen if, for example, Vikings who only speak old Norse were to suddenly appear in the 2020 Oslo and like, how would you integrate them? It's obviously um, a commentary on immigration in a, in a, in a certain way. Right. But it's a great show. It's like super interesting. It just generally part of the wonderful, I don't know. I want to say renaissance of foreign television. Cause there's always been good foreign television, but like prestige foreign television that is now being streamed into Americans' homes. So highly, highly recommended it the on you had me at world
1: building. I don't know how many other people you got at those <laughs> that word, but but you had me at world building. Those are my favorite aspects of good sci fi and fantasy. It's like I, uh, I want so to know the
2: political economy of the of the Stone Age political yeah, movements exactly. and what are the what's the what's the are they with the greens the or how does part. it all work? Yeah,
1: the best part, absolutely. Well, Quinto, what what is your object lesson for us this week?
3: That sh- that sounds delightful. Uh, mine is somewhat grimmer. Uh, it is a excellent little piece by uh, G. Elliot Morris who writes about uh, polling and politics for The Economist um, and has a, a very good substack that I would recommend to everyone called Democracy by the Numbers. He wrote a piece on uh, April 17th this past weekend called Can Democrats Avoid a Looming Electoral Disaster? Um, the answer is probably <laughs> no, not, th- no, in they case cannot. you were wondering. <laughs> um, but I do think that, look, there's there's a lot of moaning and groaning about how terribly the American political system is set up, how badly the Democrats are positioned for the coming midterms and the presidential election. And I appreciated how careful Morris is in going through and looking at these different structural factors and asking, okay, so what, what is it that we would need to do in order to dig out of this hole? Um, and his answers are unfortunately uh, pretty pie in the sky, which to be fair, he, he acknowledges. But he's, I think, his sub stack has been consistently, extremely good. And this piece was very thought provoking and uh, provoked a lot of discussion online. So I would recommend it.
2: Quinta, your assignment for next week is to bring a
3: happy object lesson. I have brought happy object <laughs> lessons. I brought turning red. I brought our flag means death. Those are happy. They're fun. <laughs>
1: Our flag means death doesn't sound happy, but I did start it this weekend and it is it is happy. It is it is It adorable. is happy.
3: It's, it is happy it's wacky. I like
1: hear it gets happier, which I'm excited about. It's definitely wacky. It's
3: it gets happier and then it gets really sad. Sorry.
1: Oh, uh, all right. Well, I hear it's renewed for second season, so at least I know it's not the end of the story. <laughs> Well, I will one day bring in an object lesson that relates somehow to our work or something intellectual. Uh, but uh, most of the things I read, I think, are just too boring to share as object lessons. I'm sharing reading right now Hirsch Lauterbach's 1948 Treaties on Recognition International Law. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I enjoy it, but nobody else will. So why would I recommend it? So instead, I'm going to go to my usual pop culture recommendations uh, for my object lesson. I mentioned earlier in the episode that I went to a concert last week uh, for the band Spoon. Which is amazing. One of my favorite bands in the world. One of the best live shows I've ever seen. I've seen them five or six times now. They're phenomenal. I highly recommend it. But they had an open, I don't need to recommend Spoon. They're a big deal already. Who I will recommend uh, was their opener, a wonderful artist named Margaret Glaspie, um, who I've actually seen her name float around because she has opened for some big deal people. She opened for like, who was it? Like um, uh, Nico Case and Kim Dawson, uh, I think, did a Tour a couple of years ago she opened for. I've seen her opening for other people came Dawson, I guess. Like I've seen her name playing around. I've never actually sat down and listened to her music. It's fantastic. She's got like a very, very rocky singer-songwriter sort of vibe. Um, but like deep, kind of like blues, southern voice, like cool rock riffs, like really interesting stuff. She also has a delightfully awkward stage kind of dancing and presence, which I find very endearing uh, for a rock show always. Uh, And it was just delightful. So I'm going to endorse you all checking out Margaret Glassby. Check it out on YouTube. I don't believe she's on Spotify, actually, on YouTube. I ended up buying um, some of her vinyl, uh, Emotions and Math, I think, her her, not her most recent album, but the one before that. the one I got that I I quite like. So worth checking out and throwing some support to up-and-coming artists now that we're able to get to live concerts again and begin to discover them all anew, which I'm very excited about. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. We are not joking. Please leave us a rating or review. A good one. Not a bad one. A good one. Uh, say things nice. We need the encouragement. While you're at it, visit www.lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes. As well as for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the response to the January 6th insurrection, The Aftermath, and our forthcoming special series on the SIV program and the collapse of the government in Afghanistan, Allies. That is fantastic and everybody should subscribe to uh, because it is some of the best work we have ever done. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer producer this week was Kara Shillin of Code Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patya Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.